Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this podcast starts with a legend involving the first meeting of two men. James Murray, the primary editor of the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, and one of his most prolific contributors, a Dr. W.C. Minor. So unless you're really into dictionaries, the scenario probably doesn't interest you right off the bat until you learn that there's a bit of a mystery surrounding the situation. So don't tune out of the podcast. No, stay Stay with with us. us for just a couple minutes. So as the story goes, Murray and Minor had been working together for about 20 years, but they'd never met. Miner had kept faithfully mailing Murray information on word origins and meanings that he picked up just in the course of his own reading and research. But even though Murray had invited him several times, Miner kept refusing to make the 50-mile trip from where he was living in the small English village of Crowthorn to Oxford, where Murray's dictionary headquarters were located. So Murray, I mean, he thinks this is a little strange, but he just thought Miner's probably a little eccentric or something like that. Maybe a shut-in or something. Yeah. So according to this legend, in 1897, Murray finally decided, well, if this guy's not going to come to me, I'm going to go to him. And work on the dictionary was progressing well at this point, and people who'd had a hand in its creation were starting to receive honors. So Murray thought, I want to make sure Dr. Minor gets recognized, too. So he doesn't spring a surprise visit on him or anything. He telegraphs Dr. Minor and says he's planning on visiting on this certain Wednesday in November, and that he'll be taking a train that should arrive at Crowthorn Station just after 2 o'clock. So Dr. Minor wires him a response and says, basically, that's great. I'll be expecting you. You'll be welcome here. And it seems like these two guys are finally going to be able to meet. Everything seems fairly normal. Um, And it really continues to seem that way. Even when Murray arrives on the appointed day, he shows up at the train station and there's a carriage waiting for him and it ushers him off to this huge brick mansion. Once he's inside, a servant shows up and Uh, attends him to the grand study where there's this very important looking man standing behind a desk and Murray bows and announces himself to him. He says, quote, a very good afternoon to you, sir. I am Dr. James Murray of the London Philological Society and editor of the New English Dictionary. It is indeed an honor and a pleasure to at long last make your acquaintance, for you must be, kind sir, my most assiduous help meet, Dr. W.C. Minor. And there's kind of an awkward pause at this point. One one of those pauses where you feel like you can hear every sound in the room. And then the man responds, quote, I regret, kind sir, I am not. It is not as all as you suppose. I am, in fact, the superintendent of the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. Dr. Minor is most certainly here, but he is an inmate. He has been a patient here for more than 20 years. Dun, dun, dun. It's like the beginning of a Wilkie Collins novel almost. And like we said, this account, as originally reported in the Strand magazine in 1915, is thought to be just a legend. But the two men who are involved and the circumstances surrounding them and the circumstances that would have put them in a situation like this were very real indeed. And we're going to take a closer look at the relationship between these two men that we've talked about in part two of this podcast. But first, we want to look into the more pressing question that this anecdote raises, which is why most people tell it when they start talking about 
Dr. Minor. Who was this Dr. W.C. Minor? What was he doing in a criminal lunatic asylum? And how did a crazy person essentially become such a major contributor to the highly respected Oxford English Dictionary? Something that just seems the ultimate of methodical, level-headed reference works you can imagine. Right. So this is going to be a tale of madness and murder and lexicography, but there's some war in here, too. And interestingly enough, this episode kind of ties into our Civil War series in a roundabout way. Yeah, part one of it, at least. But before we can get into any of that, first we need to start with the basics. Who was W.C. Minor? So William Chester Minor was born in June of 1834 in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, but he was descended from a long line of Connecticut aristocrats. His parents were missionaries. His father, Eastman Minor, was a devout Congregationalist, and his mother, Lucy, the two of them together had just moved to Ceylon the year before William was born. He also had a sister, whose name was also Lucy, who was born a couple years after him. So the first really traumatic event in William Minor's life occurred when he was very, very young. Just after his third birthday, his mother died of consumption. His father remarried to another missionary named Judith Taylor a few years later and started a second family with her. But according to a BBC article on Minor, he was uh, kind of had a troubled childhood almost and was especially tormented during his boyhood with lascivious thoughts about local girls. Yeah, which doesn't seem that odd for a young boy, right, especially in his preteen years, but it's a point that may have significance later when we start talking about his insanity and how it manifested itself. So just kind of keep that in the back of your brain for now. At age 14, Miner's dad had him sent back to Connecticut, and he sailed back to the, the United States by himself, and then he moved in with his uncle Alfred, who was a store owner in New Haven. And about 10 years after that, Miner started school at Yale, where he specialized in comparative anatomy and earned a medical degree in February of 1863. There's also kind of an interesting side note about his time at Yale, though, especially considering his later involvement with the Oxford English Dictionary. According to an article by Joshua Kendall in The Nation, in 1861, when Miner was a first-year medical student at Yale, he signed a contract to write definitions for a new edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, an American Dictionary of the English Language. And the agreement was that he'd be paid $500 to, quote, prepare the articles in the following departments, zoology, natural history, geology, mineralogy, botany, chemistry, anatomy, surgery of all sorts. Sounds like kind of a monumental undertaking, especially for a first-year medical student who's Probably got to other things. I would think so. But Miner got this job because James Dana, who was a professor at Yale um, and was originally supposed to write these selections or these sections of the, the new dictionary, had to lighten up his workload a bit because he was experiencing a bout of depression. So Dana suggested kind of randomly, it seems, a first year med student Miner to stand in for him and cover the sections. And Dana, being more experienced, would still supervise or at least review the the completed work. 
Apparently, though, he didn't supervise them that closely because, according to Kendall's article, the sections Miner worked on contained many inaccuracies and inconsistencies. His work was publicly criticized, which must have been mortifying for a young med student, especially by Samuel Stamen Haldeman of Delaware College, who later became one of the first presidents of the American Philological Association. He later wrote that, quote, Accepting Professor Dana's part, the natural history is the, quote, weakest part of the book. Burn. Yeah, totally. Regardless, Miner had his first experience working on a dictionary under his belt, and his name was in that 1864 edition of Webster's. And, of course, he also had his medical degree, too. And so after graduating from Yale, Miner joined the Union Army, and his first posting was at the Knight Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. And he was basically still training there, still getting his his, uh, experience as a doctor. But the Civil War was going on, so a few months to a year after um, entering this first posting, he ended up on the battlefront in Virginia where he served as an assistant surgeon. Now, Miner wasn't really the best uh, soldier you could imagine. He wasn't exactly cut out for the horrors of war. Most people describe him as being pretty sensitive, refined. He liked to read. He enjoyed painting watercolors. He played the flute. And so it's really unfortunate then considering the battle he ended up in. Yeah, he ended up at the Battle of the Wilderness, which is described as a particularly bloody and horrific battle. I've seen it described as a slaughterhouse. The battle lasted 50 hours, but it left 25,000 dead or wounded. It started when General Grant's men crossed the Rapidan River, and apparently the rifle fire was so thick, it not only killed people, but could cut off trees. It also started a fire in the underbrush so that not only were men being killed and wounded by gunfire, they were also being burned to death. One soldier wrote later that it was like, quote, hell had itself usurped the place of earth. And the key thing here as it relates to Minor, though, is that a lot of the people participating in this battle were Irishmen who had come over to America to escape the famine and um, make a little money while they were at it. And these guys were able to get work as soldiers in the Union Army for $13 a month. But of course, during a war, and especially a situation like the Battle of the Wilderness, where trees are being chopped down by rifle fire, you're going to have a lot of people who just figure $13 a month is not worth this and um, desert. So around this time, the Union Army had a lot of people who were guilty of desertion or attempted desertion, but because they still needed soldiers, they had to figure out a way to dissuade others from deserting, punish those who did without taking the standard uh, punishment, which is execution. They needed the soldiers to keep on fighting. So there were a few possible solutions. Some guys were suspended by their thumbs. Others were gagged with bayonets. And others were branded with the letter D on their cheeks, uh, or their cheek rather, their chest or their rear end with a hot iron or they kind of were tattooed almost, cut with a razor, and then the wound would be packed with black powder, uh, another form of branding ultimately. So on one occasion, or at least sources only refer to one specific occasion, Miner was forced to brand an Irish deserter who'd tried to run away from the Battle of the Wilderness. 
So you can kind of imagine what this must have been like for Minor. He was the young and experienced doctor being asked to perform this horrible task. And, you know, an Irishman was probably brought to him crying, struggling, pleading. And Minor has to take the hot branding iron and put it to the deserter's cheek and watch him probably scream in pain. Yeah, so most sources point to this as a defining moment for Minor, saying that it played a really big role in some of the strange, unusual things that started to happen in his life not too long after his war service. But after the war, Minor continued to serve in the Army for several years. He did pretty well for for himself, actually. He rose through the ranks, eventually becoming a commissioned captain. But during that time, his behavior also started to become increasingly strange. When he was stationed on Governor's Island in New York, he started visiting brothels a lot. And after that, he was transferred to Florida, where his behavior started getting even more and more erratic and paranoid and sometimes even violent. And he began to think that his superiors were plotting something against him. So by 1868, it was pretty clear that Miner's mind was not well, and army doctors diagnosed him as having monomania, or an obsession with one subject, which gives rise to delusions. They also said that he was suicidal and homicidal. So Miner went to the Government Hospital for the Insane in Washington, D.C., which later became St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And he actually volunteered for this. He volunteered to go. And then after 18 months in that facility, doctors decided that Miner was, quote, incapacitated by causes arising in the line of duty. So he was basically forced to retire from the army. Army, but he did win a lifetime army commission. So he was going to be taken care of financially? Yes. So after being released from the army, Miner returned to Connecticut and spent a little bit of time with his family. But his family soon decided that England was the place for him to be because they were really hoping that maybe if he went there, Miner could settle down a little bit, maybe start painting again, meet up with some talented people start to earn his reputation back. So they packed him off with his paint and a letter of introduction to the art critic and drawing master, John Ruskin, hoping that Ruskin would be some sort of entree to English society for Miner, somebody to introduce him to, to people who could help him start recovering. But for reasons that are still unclear, Miner didn't seem to even try to blend into respectable society when he got to England at the end of 1871. He settled in the Lambeth section of London, one of the lowest, seediest, most crime-ridden parts of the city. Some people think he might have moved there because he had easier access to prostitutes from this area, but we're not sure. So we don't know much about his time there, but it seems that his delusions just continued to get worse. He thought people, Irishmen in particular, were trying to break into his room at night. It seems like that vision of the branded Irishman, his experience with that, was kind of coming back to haunt him at this point. Yeah, in fact, according to an account kept by the Berkshire Record Office, Miner made a report to Scotland Yard shortly before Christmas, saying that he thought men were trying to force their way into his room at night to poison him. He believed these men to be Irish, and Scotland Yard just dismissed him as a crazy man, didn't follow up on it, didn't do anything about it. Then, on February 17th, 1872, a constable was patrolling the Lambeth area and heard several shots ring out at about 
2 a.m. He rushed off in the direction the shots came from, blowing his whistle on the way to alert other constables in the area to, to come in and support him. And who should he find holding the gun but William Chester Minor? Yes, Minor had shot and killed a man named George Merritt, a working man who was innocently on his way to work at a brewery, a man who Minor had never met. So we're going to leave you with that cliffhanger for this part one of the William Chester Minor podcast. But next time, we're going to talk a little bit about the motive behind Minor's crime, his trial, and where he ends up after that as his illness continues to progress. And of course, how he gets involved in the creation of the first Oxford English Dictionary, because because, of course, in case you've forgotten, this is a story about that, too. It's a dictionary podcast. I'm sure kind most of. people have kind of forgotten by now yeah. with all of this <laughs> insanity and murder and uh, civil war action going on. And you thought dictionaries had to be boring. Not at all. So I guess that is a good time to transition to a little listener mail. It is. We have a letter here from Lindsay in Tennessee, and uh, I wanted to read this because it relates to the theme of Civil War doctors. Very much so. Yes. She says, hi, Sarah and Dublina. I know you enjoy hearing what listeners are doing while they listen to the podcast, so I thought I'd share what I was doing while I listened to your podcast on Dr. McGuire and Stonewall Jackson. Strangely enough, I was listening to the podcast while cataloging a book of Civil War songs called Singing Soldiers, Spirit of the 60s, A History of the Civil War and Song. One of the songs in the book is entitled Stonewall's Requiem, which, as you can imagine, was written in 1863 about Stonewall Jackson's death. I'll share the lyrics with you. And there are a lot of lyrics here, so I'm not going to read them all, but I'll just read the first one out. It says, The muffled drum is beating. There's a sad and solemn tread. Our banners draped in mourning as it shrouds the illustrious dead. Proud forms are bent with sorrow, and all southern hearts are sore. The hero now is sleeping. Noble Stonewall is no more. So that was actually the first two verses. But thank you, Lindsay, for sending that in. That is quite the coincidence that you were cataloging that as you were listening to the podcast. Yeah, those are always fun. So if you have any of those you want to share with us, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, or we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to try to figure out where this podcast part one is going before you even hear part two, you can check out an article we have on our website called What Makes a Killer. Find it by searching for What Makes a Killer at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.